Welcome to Shorties, a short true crime story. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, Angel. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I got to say to you. Yeah. Um, What story are you doing today? Today, I am going to do the story of Sherry Papini. Sherry Papini, that sounds so familiar. Yeah, it. I think you know it. Okay. Once I tell it to you, you're going to be like, oh, I know exactly why you did this story. So okay. I'm just going to get into it. Yeah, dive not on it. Give any anything away. We're not we're not playing that not, game today. Not okay? wasting any time no, with that small that talk. Today. Okay. So at 5:50 p.m. on November 2nd, 2016, Keith Papini arrived at his home in Mountain Gate, California. It's about 15 minutes north of Redding, but to his surprise, the house is completely empty. His 34-year-old wife, Sherry, and their two kids weren't home like he expected them to be. So he calls the daycare, and he learns that Sherry never even picked the kids up that day. So he's concerned because that's not like her. He calls her several times, and he doesn't get through. He uses the Find My iPhone feature on his computer, and he sees that Sherry's phone is a few miles from their house on Sunrise Drive. So he drives over to this random street and pulls over, and he doesn't see anyone, including Sherry. After looking around, he finds about two feet off of the road, Sherry's cell phone and earbuds. Her phone was playing their wedding song on repeat, which was Everything by Michael Bublé. Okay. (laughs) Just in in case you're, I was waited for you to ask because I thought you would ask. That's why I wrote it down. Yeah. yeah. And (laughs) And what song was that? You just like stared. (laughs) Next. But what he thought was a little weird is that they were laying on the ground in what seemed like a very neat manner, as if someone had gently set them down there. The cord on her earbuds had been carefully rolled up and placed neatly on top of her phone, but there were big chunks of her hair wrapped up in them as if someone had forcefully ripped her hair out. So he calls 911 immediately. A massive, and I mean massive, search begins. Sherry is white with... Blonde hair and blue eyes, so of course her story made national headlines. And the story of a young wife and mother vanishing into thin air gripped many people, myself included. I remember reading about it and feeling so sorry for her and her family and thinking like it's so rare someone like this is safely recovered. It's like like what a nightmare her yeah. family is going through right now. The Shasta County Sheriff's Office conducted a thorough investigation and they also requested the help of their local FBI office. In total... Authorities received over 600 tips in the first three weeks that Sherry was missing. Hundreds of volunteers combed through several miles in the surrounding areas of Keith and Sherry's home, as well as Sunrise Drive where her iPhone was left, and nothing was found, not a single clue. Authorities heavily investigated Keith and he took several polygraph tests and passed each one. He said that he and Sherry were happy. They fought like normal couples, but overall they didn't have much conflict in their marriage. And he noted that the last fight they had took place a month before she went missing, and it was about a messy room. Authorities combed through the Pepini home, but nothing suspicious was discovered. So a San Diego-based private investigator named Bill Garcia was so moved by this story, he actually offers his services to the Pepini family pro bono, and they gratefully accepted. But even with the sheriff's department, the FBI, and a PI, there was really very little movement in the case. It was determined that Sherry was last seen while she was jogging on Sunrise Drive sometime between 10 a.m. and 12 p.m. So it's estimated she was missing for several hours before Keith even realized. 
which made the prospect of finding her alive feel all the more unlikely. Until 4.30 a.m. on Thanksgiving Day, November 24th, exactly 22 days after Sherry went missing, she was found wandering near an on-ramp of the 5 Freeway, 146 miles from her home. Her long blonde hair had been hacked off in big chunks. Her body was covered in significant bruising, all in varying stages of healing. Her nose was swollen and bruised. It appeared to have been broken for quite a while. Okay. She seemed malnourished, which is saying something because she was only 105 pounds when she went missing. And doctors found that she weighed a whopping 87 pounds. She had bindings on her wrists and ankles, and one of her arms was attached to a heavy chain around her waist. She underwent several physical exams at the hospital, but it was determined that she had not been sexually assaulted. They did find that she was branded on the shoulder like cattle, although it was hard to distinguish what it was. It was quite distorted. She had various burn marks on her arms, too, and her arms and legs had had some type of a rash on them that was really significant. Sherry initially refused to speak to police. She told her husband, Keith, that her abductors had insinuated that law enforcement had been involved. Therefore, she didn't trust the police who were attempting to speak to her. So I, I've never heard of anything like this happening before, but the, the police then gave her husband, Keith, a set of questions and like asked him to interview her. Oh, okay. Like for them. So her guard would be down with him. Yeah, but like... I mean, That's I don't really know. sneaky. And let's say I, like that could that could, that could cause some marital issues. But how would any of that hold up in a court of law if it, if it ever, you know, you didn't you weren't interviewed by the proper authorities who are trained in this who, you know what I mean? Well, you could argue being um someone that's like uh not mic'd up, but you know, you go into a situation and you, oh, sure. you know, you, things like that. They oh, could have been a, listening or something actually, like that. Actually, maybe or, they were. I, okay, maybe that makes more sense. It's kind of like doing a <laughs> confession to somebody yes. does still hold no, up. No, you're right. You're right. So she told Keith that her abductors had informed her that a police officer was, quote, the buyer, which insinuates this was a possible sex trafficking case. Eventually, Sherry cooperated and told authorities that the day she'd gone missing, she had dropped the kids off at daycare like normal, then went for a jog along her usual route. When she turned onto Sunrise Drive, an SUV pulled over near her. Two women were in the car and one beckoned her closer as if she was going to ask for directions. But when Sherry approached, they pulled a gun on her and demanded that she put her phone down and then get in the car. She said the two women were Hispanic. One was much older and one was much younger. Sherry said that she obeyed and got in the SUV. The women put something over her face and then she said they drove for a really long time, but she didn't know what direction they went in. She said that she couldn't stay awake during the drive and that the car smelled like sewage. Sometime later, she woke up in a different outfit in a room that she didn't recognize with no idea how that all came to be. For 22 days straight, Sherry was chained in a dark bedroom against her will. She was given a bucket with kitty litter in it to use as a bathroom, but she was also forced to wear an adult diaper. So I don't really know what, I mean, obviously there's no logic with these kidnappers, yeah. but it's still it's like, like a worse nightmare. Yeah. She was fed once a day and the portions were directly influenced by her behavior. If she was good, she got more food. She also said they put a speaker just outside the door to drive her crazy. She said, quote, they would play music loudly, that really annoying Mexican music, unquote. Okay. 
Okay. I know. Well, I have a lot of feelings it's about not that. Very PC. No, I don't like it that. I don't like it that. I don't like it that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized she's a victim, but I want to say uh, some mean I, things. I have some things to say. Yeah. She said that her tormentors, the two Hispanic women, regularly beat her. They attempted to conceal their faces, but Sherry saw enough to give a rough description to a sketch artist, which the FBI later released to the press. The older one was very mean and seemed to be in charge, whereas the younger one seemed to be reluctantly involved, but just as abusive. She said both women took turns hurting her, and they spoke in Spanish the majority of the time. Sherry had done her best to comply in captivity, but she said that it was unclear why they had targeted her specifically. More than once, she said they referenced a police officer being the buyer and that he was the one requesting she be malnourished, beaten, and eventually branded. They used crude restraints on her ankles and wrists, something the police labeled pain-compliant restraints. The day that she was released, she said that she heard the women arguing a lot, and then in the middle of the night, the younger woman loaded Sherry into the car with the pillowcase over her head, drove for hours, and then dumped her on the side of the road. Sherry said that she found a church, but no one was there because it's like 4 a.m. on Thanksgiving Day. Mm -hmm. So she followed the sounds of cars, walked up the on-ramp of the freeway, and flagged down a passing truck. Eventually, Sherry is released from the hospital, and obviously she's publicly and privately celebrated for her bravery, and she begins the long process of healing. Mm -hmm. But what's really odd is that both during her disappearance and even after her recovery, a lot of people that she knew throughout her life came out of the woodwork to cast doubt on her claims. Ooh. Several people insinuated or flat out said they believed she made this all up to get attention. Yikes. So I followed this story when it happened in real time. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so shocked by people claiming that she was lying. Like, obviously, I don't know this chick, but it seemed incredibly insensitive to her as well as her family. Because I mean, like, who has the balls to accuse a missing person of, of lying? lying? I remember all of this, too, and it, being disgusted. I was disgusted. I was like, these people are sick. This poor yeah. woman, her poor fa all of it. I, just, I was so I was so bothered by it. After news broke that Sherry was reporting that two Hispanic women kidnapped her, several of her former classmates circulated an old blog post. Sherry had written and posted it to her MySpace page in 2007. In it, she details being regularly bullied by a group of girls during her high school years and how after getting into a physical altercation where she broke one of the girls' nose and split open her eyebrow, <sighs> her father expressed how proud of her he was. The post reads in part, quote, I used to come home in tears because I was getting suspended from school all the time for defending myself against the Latinos. The chief problem was that I was drug-free, white, and proud of my blood and heritage. This really irked a group of Latino girls, which would constantly rag and attack me. And then she ended the post by saying this, quote i'm gonna, I'm gonna keep saying quote so nobody ever misconstrues this as something I i'm saying think it's very smart quote being white is more than just being aware of my skin but standing behind skinheads who are always around in spirit as well and having pride for my country end quote so i have to say as someone who is mexican 
this made someone my someone who's not a fucking racist. Well, for so many reasons, <laughs> <laughs> for because I'm not racist, and she's clearly racist towards uh, my people. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was so infuriating. That's I, I have so many things I want to say, and I don't. I feel like I just hope people are like, we get it on it. Say no more. No, say less. We I, know. I think everyone gets it. Yeah. And this isn't the end of the story. So. Oh, there's more I'm going to hate? <laughs> oh, there's a lot more that you're going to hate, and I think that you're going to have a lot to say by the end of it. Okay, I'll save some, some of my nasty words for later. Yeah. yeah. So, despite the fact that Sherry seems to have a history of being racist, specifically towards Hispanic people, and her interviews with authorities are filled with various clues pointing towards her feelings, they obviously still need to investigate this crime. For 12 months after Sherry was found, authorities worked tirelessly on her case. They received so many tips about suspicious Hispanic women, all of which did not pan out. Police had weekly contact and fairly regular interviews with Sherry, but her memory of captivity wasn't great, and there ended up being a lot of confusing inconsistencies in her story as a result. Interestingly, on the underwear that Sherry was wearing when she was found, male DNA that did not match her husband was discovered. She told authorities that she wasn't sexually assaulted and that the only two people she saw during her captivity were the Hispanic women. So she couldn't explain how sperm ended up in her underwear. And unfortunately, a CODIS search turned up nothing on the DNA sample. And the underwear that she was found in was the same underwear that she was wearing when she went missing. Ew. So she's been wearing, she's been wearing it for 21 days? <laughs> 22. <laughs> 22 days. Yeah. And somehow, I don't know. and somehow some sperm got in there that was, doesn't belong to her husband. I was about to say, I admittedly don't know everything. I, I don't know much, but I can confidently say that sperm does not come out of the woodwork. Oh, no, it doesn't just happen upon your underwear. <laughs> happen upon your underwear <laughs> in such a way. Never works like that. Okay, I, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't incorrect about that. No, no, I think you're pretty spot on. Spot on. While she was missing, authorities found text messages between Sherry and an unnamed male living in the Detroit area. They were discussing the idea of meeting up when he was in California for work, and the day they planned to meet happened to be the day that she disappeared. Authorities interviewed this guy in Michigan, and they ended up clearing him. He and Sherry had briefly dated many years ago and had remained friendly and in contact ever since. He said while he was in California on business, he didn't hear from her, so he just assumed the plan to meet was off. And the day after Sherry vanished, this guy flew back to Michigan completely unaware of what was going on with her. So it wasn't his sperm. It wasn't his sperm. Cool. Check that one off the list. In addition to this guy, <laughs> authorities found that Sherry had at least two male contacts in her phone, but she had listed them under female names. They too were both cleared as suspects. One of them was an ex-boyfriend of hers who told police that when he saw the news coverage, he was convinced that Sherry had made up the kidnapping story to get attention. He called her an attention-hungry person who told stories to try to get people's sympathy. When they dated, he said she was always spinning tales of abuse from her family and her father. And then when they broke up, she started telling stories about him being abusive towards her during their relationship. After she was safely recovered, her family released a statement thanking authorities and volunteers and the outpouring of support that they had received. They requested privacy and stated they just wanted to focus on moving on and shielding Keith and Sherry's two small kids from any more scrutiny. 
and they have since tried to stay out of the public eye and have avoided giving interviews. So over the years, authorities continually tested the DNA sample from her underwear against possible matches. (laughs) (laughs) Possible man matches. (laughs) But it never turned up anything. That is until the year 2020. Recent. Four years after this nightmare, authorities get a freaking break in the case through familial DNA. The sperm found in Sherry's underwear belonged to an ex-boyfriend of hers. When police interviewed him, he confessed that in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, Sherry had been confiding in him that she was unhappy in her marriage. She claimed that her husband Keith was abusive and that she needed to escape. He said that they planned to meet on the day Sherry went missing. He said she was waiting for him on Sunrise Drive, and when he pulled over, she got in, laid down in the back seat, and went to sleep. He made the nine-hour drive back to his home in Costa Mesa, which is in Southern California. Oh, wow. Okay. So she made her ex-boyfriend drive nine hours to pick her up, turn around, drive nine hours back, and she just slept in the car the whole time. I don't think I have that power over any of my exes. Oh, just wait. Just wait. What have I been doing wrong? (laughs) Not scaring him enough, (laughs) I guess. And then after that, they spent three weeks holed up in his apartment. He said, Sherry often did weird things like go days without eating. She would inflict injuries on herself to create large bruising. She would randomly hack off big, uneven chunks of her hair. She would try to hide in a closet if he had an unexpected guest over. And one day, she even asked him to brand her on the shoulder. She sent him to an arts and crafts store to get a specific crafting tool to use as the hot iron. I hate her. He told uh, like the FBI agents that he had wanted to keep the little tool for like woodworking. And she was like, no, you can throw it away. And so he did. <laughs> He's like, but I like it. Yeah. So despite this alarming behavior, he still believed that she was hiding out from an abusive husband, and he also believed that they were getting back together. So he did whatever she asked him to do and didn't challenge any of her bizarre behavior. Why do you want to get back together with a chick that's doing any of this? In my mind, he doesn't really say this, at least in the interview that I read, he doesn't really say it, but I think in his mind, because he believed that she was trying to escape an abusive relationship, Uh, maybe it was just like, oh, I don't really understand what's going on, but you've been through a lot. I'm just going to try to be supportive, I guess. But when you think about what it was that she was doing, that shouldn't ever apply. So I thought you were going to be like, from the looks of it, he doesn't get chicks. (laughs) (laughs) No, his name. He doesn't really get bitches. So (laughs) (laughs) it was Sherry. It was hairless Sherry or nothing. (laughs) Sorry, man. I'm sure you're great. Or I don't know. You're something. I don't know. His name has never been released. So in the FBI affidavit, it it doesn't say his name or anything like that. So I couldn't like verify. So more than one person visited this ex-boyfriend's apartment while Sherry was there. And they later stated that she was not being held against her will. They, too, believe the story that she was hiding from an abusive husband. So when they would see the news coverage, they just assumed like she's it's a safety thing you know so they never said anything then the night before thanksgiving she told him that she missed her kids too much and she wanted him to drive her back home to reading so he agreed he drove all night dropped her off on a deserted road and handed her a bag of items that she had sent him to the store to get then he watched her put zip ties on her wrists and ankles attach a chain around her waist and then use an additional zip tie to attach her arm to the chain 
Then she had him dispose of everything and he just was like, sent him on his way. <laughs> Drive safe. Yeah. Then he drove back to Costa Mesa and went to Thanksgiving dinner with his family. He never heard from Sherry again after that day. And he, like everyone else in the country, saw the reports of her supposed harrowing recovery and heard all about the fake story she was telling everyone. But for whatever reason, he never came forward. So with this information, Sherry was arrested on March 3rd, 2022 and charged with making false statements to a federal agent and committing mail fraud. When FBI agents arrested her, Sherry screamed no and tried to outrun them. <laughs> you run a five minute mile, girl? <laughs> Doubt it. After her arrest, she did admit to talking inappropriately to other men when her husband would travel for work, but she denied the ex-boyfriend's accusations and insisted that she was in fact kidnapped and abused by two Hispanic women. She's like, come on, I already told you this. Yeah, let's get the racist thing across. Yeah. Bill Garcia, the PI who generously offered his services to her family pro bono, gave a statement after her arrest. He said he feels duped and that this is the first time he's been hoaxed in his 30-year career. A close relative of Sherry's, who chose to remain anonymous, told People Magazine that in light of the arrest, she feels betrayed. She said she would have given Sherry the shirt off her back, but now feels like this was just one big joke. She ended her interview by saying she thinks that rather than a long jail sentence, Sherry just needs mental help. Trudy Nickens founded the organization NorCal Alliance for the Missing, which was heavily involved in organizing search groups for Sherry. Trudy told People Magazine that learning of Sherry's arrest was shocking. She said the amount of cash, food, water, and time that the local community provided in the search for her was astonishing, and hundreds and hundreds of people came out to try to help find this woman that they didn't even know. So the resources spent on trying to find Sherry and then again disproving her story was such a waste. Could have been used on somebody else that actually needed that. But in addition, Trudy and others in her community have all been under the impression since 2016 that this was a public safety issue, that Sherry was picked up off the side of the road. Trudy said that she had five daughters under the age of 22 at the time of Sherry's disappearance, and they've all spent these years thinking that Sherry really had been abducted. So the worry and stress that it had on locals was also so unnecessary. But the most heartbreaking aspect of Trudy's interview is that she mentions two days before Sherry went missing, a woman named Stacy Smart went missing in a neighboring town. Stacy's case got very little media attention, almost no resources, and her family wasn't supported. All because everyone was so focused on finding Sherry. And Stacy Smart is still missing to this day. A GoFundMe account was created to support the Papini family during her disappearance, and in total, they raised just under $50,000. Oh my God. But after her return, Keith and Sherry used most of that money to pay off credit card debt that they'd had prior to her disappearance. And they purchased new window treatments and then spent the rest however they saw fit. And Sherry's mail fraud charge stems from victim assistance funds. From 2017 to 2021, Sherry qualified for victims assistance funds through the state of California that can be applied to mental health or medical bills relating to the crime that you were victim to. In this case, she claimed to have anxiety and PTSD from her kidnapping. In total, Sherry received $30,000 worth of therapy completely covered by the state. 
It's estimated that Sherry's entire case has cost Shasta County, federal and state taxpayers, crime victims, and donors over $200,000. If Sherry is convicted of all the charges, she's facing up to 25 years in prison and fines that total half a million dollars. Good. On April 18th, 2022, Sherry formally pled guilty. She released a statement that read, quote, I'm so very sorry for the pain that I've caused my family, my friends, all the good people who needlessly suffered because of my story and those who worked hard to try and help me. I will work the rest of my life to make amends for what I have done, unquote. You can't. No, you pretty much you, can't. You can't. You, you check too many boxes of being a terrible person to mm-hmm. be able to undo that. So I just wanted to explain for anyone who doesn't know, Anna and I started this podcast under a different name and format, and that's where I did a two-part story about a woman named Denise Huskins in Vallejo, California. Denise was a real victim of a real kidnapping, but authorities on her case decided immediately that she was lying. Despite the fact that her story was real and that her boyfriend Aaron was present and victimized during the abduction as well, not to mention the overwhelming amount of physical evidence proving that this kidnapping really happened, the authorities on her case accused her of fabricating the entire thing. They went so far as to share confidential case details to the press, which compromised the investigation, and they publicly announced that they had no reason to believe that Denise was telling the truth. They even publicly speculated while Denise was missing that perhaps she had reached out to an ex-boyfriend and was holed up with him somewhere, hoping to get attention from everyone. Denise's story took place in March of 2015, and it got a lot of media attention. But it's important to know that the version of events printed came from the corrupt and incompetent Vallejo Police Department, who had decided from the moment that Denise was reported missing that this was a big fat lie. As a result, Denise was known in the media as the real-life Gone Girl, which is a reference to the book by Gillian Flynn where a woman stages her own murder in an attempt to frame her cheating husband, but then later gets caught red-handed. It wasn't until the year 2021 when Denise and her now-husband Aaron published their book Victim F, which detailed the true events of the nightmare that they endured. That's when we finally learned the truth. Up to that point, the public believed Denise had fabricated this kidnapping story and the Vallejo PD's speculation of what really happened was taken as gospel. And given that Sherry Papini went missing a year after Denise's story had dominated headlines and the fact that several of the details from her supposed abduction matches perfectly to the fake scenario that the police fed to the media, I think it's plausible that Sherry was aware of and probably influenced by Denise's story. Denise Huskins was not only victimized by her kidnapper, but she was repeatedly victimized by the Vallejo Police Department and the local FBI branch that was investigating her case, which resulted in significant pain and loss. Authorities annihilated her reputation in the press, and she's had to advocate for herself and put her life back together. Sherry Papini, for reasons I'm not even going to waste my time speculating on, created unnecessary pain and worry and disruption in the lives of her friends, family, and community. She wasted valuable time and resources that authorities could have spent solving actual crimes involving actual victims. Sherry clearly needs mental health, and I hope for the sake of her children that she gets it as soon as possible. And based off of the statement that she released with her guilty plea, it seems like maybe she is on that path. And that is the story of Sherry Papini's fake kidnapping. 
That reminds me exactly of the Denise Huskins case. It's almost like verbatim. It's it, almost like she took news articles covering Denise Huskins' story and then was just like, oh, well, she did it, so I'm going to do this. And you could almost not understand, but you could, there could be a little bit more understanding if, let's say, the Cher Papini case happened first, and then it comes out that she's lying, and then this person, the exact same you know, thing happened, yep. and then you could say, okay, well, this person is just copying this case, and yeah. they're all faking it. And that's what's so ironic is, like, Denise's story story was first and it was real and then she and the authorities on that case didn't believe her yeah for no logical reason yeah and then this story is not real nothing about it is real and now that she's been arrested and like the fbi uh, arrest affidavit like mm-hmm. has come mm-hmm. out and that's all public it shows how much they actually suspected this wasn't a real kidnapping from the very beginning yet the authorities handled it appropriately which was until proven otherwise, they have exactly. to treat it like a real crime and, she, and she's exactly. a real victim. And so it's sad that a real victim wasn't treated like a real victim and was villainized for something she wasn't doing. And then an idiot copies that story, fakes it all, but she's treated gets the like- pity. Yeah. And, and the financial assistance yeah. and like the all, all the support, everything. But it's even like the focus that she had on the Latina community. And oh, it's like yeah. the minorities are ready. There's already a hyper focus mm-hmm. on minorities. And mm-hmm. then to basically throw a generalization under the bus and yep. then bring more focus onto innocent people. Yep. And then it's like how many women, How because she specifically said Hispanic women had attacked her. And so then how many women that are just walking down the street have been pulled aside and questioned and then been disrupted and traumatized and accused of something just because they fit the fake demographic of a a fake crime. And that's also something that just makes it so much worse because it's one thing to come up with this story for attention. Yes. Like I I don't agree with that, but I can wrap my head around it. Mm -hmm. The fact that she is so racist that not only does she have to create this fake scenario for attention but then she needs to bring her hate towards an entire demographic exactly into Into it it. that is the thing that like based off her statement it's like that's the thing that I can't forgive and that's the thing I'll never get past and that totally changes it she used this as a way to reinforce a narrative that is so ill it's awful (laughs) yeah so anyways, I'm not a fan of Sherry Papini. <laughs> Nor am I. But I hope for the sake of her family and her kids in particular that something changes. There's some closure, at least for them. Some type of healing. Yeah. So, well, anyways, great job. Thank you. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorty's Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Shorty's Podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina.